today we're going to be looking at Never Let Go from 1960, directed by John Gilliman, starring Richard Todd and Peter Sellers. It's the story of a salesman uh, whose car is stolen by a gang of car thieves who are led by a smarmy salesman stroke small-time criminal played by Peter Sellers uh, in his first and possibly only straight role as, yeah, that's, as a villain. Uh, the research seems to point towards that. I think, you know, there's being there, I think, is the other yeah, one Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's a grey area. It's such mm. such serious acting, even for a slightly comedic role, that you yeah, could yeah. say it's a straight role. But yeah, it was his, at the time, it was his first straight bit of acting, if you will. Um, it was, you know, a deliberate choice to play a villain in a movie rather than kind of a, a comic role or a, a clownish role. What's that accent he's doing? You're Northern. Do you recognise it? I kind of thought it was generic Northern, but then there was bits of Scouse coming in there occasionally. It's not Nottingham, is it? No, I don't know. It's just I have some things to say about the performance later, so maybe oh, okay. we can get into okay. it then. Yeah, so this is this was your choice, and yeah. I, I fear it'll be the least downloaded podcast in our city, <laughs> just because it's such a, an oddity. No, that's Downhill Racer. Poor yeah. Downhill Racer, a masterpiece that if people won't even <laughs> won't <laughs> even look at, will they? Yeah, this was just one of those weird things. I, you know, I've set up like a Twitter account for the podcast, and I was kind of just following a few threads about British films, and it led me to an IndieWire article on British crime films that was written in 2013. Mm. And it had, you know, the usual suspects were in there, like Long Good Friday and Mona Lisa, and then stuff that you know people have probably seen, Gangster Number One and Croupier. Um, but then it had a bunch that I'd never heard of. Uh, it Only Rains on Sunday. Oh, yeah, that's the great. Squeeze, Sitting Target. Like, I've never heard of those. And it also had this film, which just, I don't know, it piqued my interest. Mm. And I watched it and recommended it to you. And yeah. here we are. Here we you, are. Know, you didn't reject it, so, you know. <laughs> well, I, I, Unless you're going to slam it. I've been watching a, a bit of Peter Sellers lately. I watched um, his one film's director, Topaz, which I think also counts as serious acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I watched for the first time ever, I watched The Smallest Show on Earth quite recently, um, which I loathed. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> which is really surprising. So I was, I'm always in the mood for Peter Sellers. Sure, um, sure. But yeah, you you watch it and then you start to research it and it's it's such a, like a, a focal film for so many people. And it's, mm-hmm. it's when you start looking at the connections of the people working yeah, on it yeah, and... Yeah, yeah. And in it and everything, you, you realise it, it does have a, a place in history. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I was just surprised how kind of lean and, and raw and exciting and sort of relatable it was as well. You know, mm. I loved the, the lead character, John. I just think like, his journey, it's really, really credible. I love it. Mm. I, I wasn't as involved in it dramatically, but I did find there's lots and lots of nice filmmaking touches throughout Mm-mm. it. And lots of lots of accidentals and things that, that I really, really enjoyed, mm. especially the second time round. I didn't do too much research on the background, I have to say. There's not a great deal out there. Did you look up John Guillemin? And, and I'm sorry, apologies to anyone who's a fan of John Guillemin or Guillemin. I do not know how to pronounce that name. I know that he's... Guillemin, maybe? Guillemin? Yeah, I, I would always say Guillemin, but then that's because I'm English. But yeah, then yeah. He, he had his French background, All right. and his real name is um, Yves-Jean I'm assuming Guillaume. Guillaume. You have to do with an accent. So that's. Should we stick with that? Yeah. Let's let's call him uh, John. John. Yeah. So the di- um, let's call him the director. Uh, John's the director's Wikipedia page is clearly curated by somebody who has a lot of time for him because oh, okay. it's very very well balanced. There's a lot of reports about how dictatorial and unpleasant he was on set. He was a, a clinical perfectionist who had 
um, uh, an irascible streak, as it's described, mm. did a lot of screaming and yelling at crew and cast, oh, yeah, okay. made pretty much all of his shoots an unpleasant thing. Do you think experience. that's a French thing? Uh, <laughs> it's a joke, obviously. Um, but then at the same time, it's balanced out by lots of people, you know, praising his meticulous eye and mm, sure. saying that um, were it not for the vagaries of fashion, he, he, you know, he was unfashionable at the time. Oh, the he did all sorts of work, didn't he? It was, it was such a broad kind of yeah canvas of uh, genres and. I've I've always thought of him just in passing, without having seen that many of his films. I've always thought of him as one of those directors of expensive stodge. Through the seventies, sixties, and seventies, oh he distilled that well, no. down. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's one of those safe pair of hands directors that makes bad Bond movies, and that that expensive producers like to like to hire mm-hmm. because they won't do anything too crazy and they won't rock the boat, and they'll get a solid bit of work out of it that's inevitably a bit dull. Yeah. And then you look at the Towering Inferno, and you look at Skyjacked, and you look yeah, at yeah. Um, I don't know what was the other one, the King Kong remake, and you think yeah, 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 you don't really think auteur, do you? <laughs> Tarzan, Shaft yeah. in Africa, exactly. So, yeah, but on the basis, he's not quite Lumet, is he? No, sort of but I mean, Lumet. this is this is really interestingly made. Yes, yeah, there's a lot of energy to it. I think mm. a lot of kind of excitement. You can see how it might have been a gateway to Hollywood because that's pretty much really. He leaves off, doesn't he? And it's it's interesting. It's not like a first film. It's you know he's made many features before yeah, this. Yeah, it's, it's not as if, and I don't think he was one of those like straight out of the starting gate directors. He did say by the time I read an interview with him last night, and he was talking about you know the time that he made King Kong. He said you know I've been directing movies for twenty years. I've got I've got craft dripping off my fingers. I can do anything. <laughs> sure. Um, so I think he was one of those kind of craftsmen who, who mm. kind of built up over the years rather than just like right, right. burst out with a, an amazing first feature he did which, a second King Kong film didn't he with Linda Hamilton yeah in 96 yeah, uh, yeah not going near that <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so yeah he's, he's not one of those like firebrand young talents this is definitely like craft that he's learned mm. that he's bringing to this movie there isn't there isn't a great deal about the actual nuts and bolts making of it there's only fragments I've picked up there's precious little about it that I've been able to find, apart from the facts, some bits about Peter Sellers. Uh, he's famous for being an empty shell who's inhabited by whatever part he's playing. And yeah. apparently, he this... said that, didn't he? Isn't that that's, that's a direct quote? Yeah, he uh, and this this wreaked har- havoc on his marriage for yeah. the duration of the shoot because he was in the middle of a deep depression and very angry and playing a deeply unpleasant person. Mm-hmm. And his wife has stated that he was deeply unpleasant for the <laughs> oh, duration dear. of the shoot. Um, I dug out my Peter Sellers biography. Um, which I was saving to read on holiday, but I had to dig out of the loft <laughs> in order to get some notes. But there's there's almost nothing in there at all beyond oh, really? that. I saw that it's referenced in The Secret Life of Peter Sellers, the Jeffrey Rush film. Oh, is it? Yeah, apparently. But yeah, I, I didn't get time to go back and look at it. But Okay, well, let's let's make a start. Well, it opens with a scene in a scrapyard, a location in a scrapyard beside a railway. And it, the whole kind of opening of the film kind of lays out what the scam is with mm. cars being stolen and the number plates replaced. I really like it, sort of step by step, isn't it? And yeah. by, by the end of the opening sequence, you kind of understand how that scam works. You know, you feel like you've had a little criminal insight. And it's quite handy as well because it gives you in the, in the opening five minutes gives you a bit of Adam Faith and a bit of Peter Sellers who don't mm. otherwise appear in the film until significantly mm, later. True, true. Peter Sellers doesn't turn up in the main till about half an hour into the film, so you get. You know, you get confirmation Peter Sellers is in it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, but yeah, it's a really nice little sequence. Um, I'd, I'd like a lot of the locations in this. I love the fact that most of this is shot on location. Yeah. 
there was three weeks of studio shooting, but you can't really tell. No, it's just some of the interiors look a little setty, don't yeah. they? But yeah, I mean, I was searching for the the main location on uh, Google Maps, and it's been demolished. Completely. Yeah, it's demolished in '65. Yeah, there's a really nice website called RealStreets.com. Did you see that? No. And they have like before and after pictures of locations. The area where his car is stolen from, that's Southgate Road um, in Haggerston. Okay. I've, I've been on there, so I, when I cross-referenced on Google Maps, like I, I've definitely walked that street, which is nice. But then I was obsessed with trying to track down this main location where you have the garage and uh, the cafe yeah. and things, and that's gone. It's been completely demolished and replaced with a housing estate. Right, yeah, yeah. I was trying to work out where it was roughly supposed to be set because it makes sense, Haggerson, because he gets on a, off a bus at one point and it's got, I think, Old Gate on there or something. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely sort of east to north London, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's funny. Did you see the Italian poster that, that the movie's called Gangsters of Piccadilly? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it's right. It's got a picture of Piccadilly Circus in the background. Yeah, nice. One of the delights of this film is all the locations. I mean, they're not familiar locations to me. It's just they feel so real. There's things that you get from them that you you can't get otherwise. Like the opening scene by the railway, you get all that kind of scrapyards tucked in by the uh, railway. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And you get the sound from the railway, and there's really mm. nice use of of location sounds in the film, and the the sound generally is quite quite carefully and creatively used. Yeah, there's a few nice places where the sound design bridges mm. interior exterior locations, but yes. also you know location to set work. It's really, really clever. And the nighttime streets by by Burgess. Um, I don't know if it's if it was you know dressed to be that way or if it's just a byproduct of when they were shooting. But it, it feels really wintry. Mm-mm. You know, stuff that you cannot fake even these days in CGI. You've got like misty light in the background, yeah, yeah. and the streets are slicked with rain. And mm-hmm. just, um, I think it's one of the things that warmed me to the film in in the first few scenes. Like, oh, that's really atmospheric. Yeah, it yeah, feels yeah. like winter, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Um, and cars passing and real sounds and stuff like that, and you know, and and warm ambient light from windows and things. Uh, it's just really nice stuff. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so there's a really nice, nicely cut sequence where the, his John's car, as it turns out, is being stolen. You know, we have this sort of stepping stone introduction to the process of taking logbooks from scrapped cars, and then they find cars that match the logbooks, and then they replate them so that they can sell them on. Yeah, and change the engine numbers yeah, yeah, and yeah, all that stuff. Stolen cars. So we sort of follow this thread until we see the exact car that they're looking for, and that's mm. where the camera just locks off and the titles roll, and we just yeah. sit there looking at this beautiful Ford Anglia. But it's really nicely timed and it isn't an optical. It's not a freeze frame. They just kind of timed it for the for the length of the credits. Let the camera roll and then you get a really nice focus pull as Adam Faith steps into frame to steal it. it. But I mean that that sort of technique of um, kind of stepping stones continues. So once the car is stolen we have the newspaper vendor across the road that's watching Mm. and then we cut from his point of view into the building from outside of which the car was stolen to the guy that owns the car you know and then we've kind of introduced everybody we've introduced the kind of narrative thrust is the stolen car Mm. and the person that's trying to get it back and i mean that's it simply yeah but it's really it's it's really carefully done and really succinct and really clear quite quite complex bit of storytelling done really really nicely and creatively and clearly isn't it Mm -hmm. so the the car theft has taken place outside burgess cosmetics company um and then we cut to the inside of their sales office and we meet uh Johnny Cummings, who's a lead character. We forgot to mention that the oh, the theme music is a version of When Johnny Comes Marching Home, sung by Adam Faith. Yeah, that's the thing I like least about the film, I have to say, is that 
that tune. It's it's it feels odd. I suppose it makes sense by the time you get to the end of the film. It works perfectly over you know as end credits music after after the events of the film. But yeah, it is odd. Uh, so, yeah, so we meet Johnny Cummings, um, who's a chipper, fairly confident, successful salesman. Yeah, he keeps a smile on his face, doesn't he? Yeah, he's you know, happy he... to flirt with the girls leaving the office. Yeah, that's it. He's just got kind of one-liner prepped for any occasion, it yes. feels like. But it, also, we get the slight inference that he's kind of out of out of date a little bit as well slightly old-fashioned well there's a bit of a bit of joshing with his with his uh, competitor salesman called spink spink that's a cool name isn't it <laughs> who who believes he has a scientific method um and statistics of, old boy yeah, statistics scientific method um and then there's kind of a back and forth between them it's quite interesting this is something that happens a few times in the film um when johnny leaves the scene the camera just lingers on Spink, kind of looking up a little bit doubtfully and then going back to his figures. He's a bit smug, isn't he, Spink? Yeah, but it's something that, that happens a few times. I'll, I'll flag it up when it happens again, but the scene, you know, Johnny's our lead character, mm. but we're not exclusively in his point of view, and we are given other people's viewpoints in a scene. Yeah, yeah, Often yeah, things definitely. are tagged onto the end of the scene after he's left to give you yeah, a slightly unsettling... It builds up to a beautiful moment halfway through the film. Mm. Where I, yeah. yeah, Johnny steps out into the street finds he's had his car nicked mm. he does have that line just before he um he steps out and he says <laughs> it's like his kind of famous last words isn't it where uh the spink says you know maybe have a look at statistics and try and improve your game a little bit and he just says oh boy i've never had it so good and that's his kind of famous last words yeah. yeah like you say he steps out in the street and his car has been nicked so i've got notes um it's a very sort of noir sequence with sort of low angles and strong key lighting in mm-hmm. this um yeah, but I think it's just like you say, the winter mist, you know, the hard lighting, mm. the sort of chaos. John Barry's kicking in now as well, isn't he? He's trying to, yeah. trying to run off with the film. <laughs> uh, should we talk about John Barry now at this point? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, you know, I love the score, I have to say. I don't know if it's entirely appropriate, um, but there's there's moments where it just, you know, it really gets my blood, <laughs> blood pumping and I'm really excited by it. Right. There's, um, right. Do you know it was his, his first movie credit? His first film, yeah, because he's friends with Adam Faith, wasn't he? He was... Um, ah, that makes sense. Yeah, so they'd met on like a... So Adam Faith, who plays the teenage car thief Tommy Towers, he was also a pop star by this point. I think he'd had one or two Yeah, hits. He'd, he'd done a TV appearance too. Yeah, so the TV appearance, I think John Barry was on that as doing incidental music and maybe he'd written the theme music or something. Oh, okay. Um, and they collaborated together through most of Adam Faith's music career, and so I think he brought him onto this. Okay, that makes sense. I do not like this music at all. Oh no, because I was like, we're going to drop in bits of music here because the music's even better than the dialogue and stuff. If it means I have to listen to this soundtrack again, we will not be dropping bits of music into this edit. Oh my god. I, I do not like it at all, but I think there's a reason for that, and just by pure coincidence... So I'm gonna to have to gonna to have to reach for my phone because I took a screenshot of it. I follow the the movie critic um, Jonathan Rosenbaum. He has a website and he posts old reviews and new observations and stuff mm-hmm. daily, um, and it's always really interesting. He did a little thing about Richard Brooks, director Richard Brooks' use of music. He made Blackboard Jungle mm-hmm. and also Looking for Mr. Goodbar. And he's okay. con- comparing and contrasting how he used. Um, jazz in Blackboard Jungle mm-hmm. um, and disco music in Looking for Mr. Goodbar and he, he pointed out something that hadn't really occurred to me um, and I guess you had to be there but at the time and at the time this movie came out as well jazz was quite edgy and mm-hmm. dark 
and it was it was kind of like used to suggest foreboding and doom. Mm-hmm. I think the quote here I've got is. Um, the fact that Brooks no longer uses jazz to attain this effect may say something about the changing status of jazz in movies since the 50s. It's gone from an expressionist voice of doom in Blackboard Jungle, The Man with the Golden Arm and Touch of Evil, to simply another set of colours within the musical spectrum. Indeed, now that jazz in one form or another can be found in elevators and dentist waiting rooms as often as in, in bars, yeah, sure, sure. its implicit meaning in films is hardly the same as it once was, which would explain why I hate it so much. <laughs> I mean, I, I imagine it worked perfectly in context and at the time, but just for me, it just sounds like big bands like jazz. It sounds like trad jazz. There's there's bits where it feels quite quite moody, where it feels like movie score, but then it just suddenly goes... Bah, 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 da, 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 and it just sounds like show tunes. Yeah, I like that aspect. I like it when it goes from just like you hear like one bongo being slapped, you know, and then suddenly you get the horns blaring in. It really sort of caught me by surprise. I thought it was really exciting. Uh just think, just a question of taste. I'm, okay. I'm not. Maybe we'll a... play a little bit now. You can make your own. Oh my love, dear listeners. So that's the music. I like. Matt hates. I've just got a note to ask you to to stop introducing me to films that desperately need rescoring. <laughs> like you lent me Hoosiers, which I oh, saw yeah. for the first time. Yeah, the <laughs> score really, really so eighties. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's really distracting actually. But again, this is this is another of those where I would just if I could <laughs> strip off the score and replace it with something else. Yeah, anything. If there's if there's anyone out there who's a John Barry fan who can point me in the direction of some really good. And this is, I'm not being snarky, this is not a piss take, because I would like to listen, I've been listening to a lot of soundtracks lately, and I would like to find some really good John Barry. There was an article on the Quietus website recently, which pointed me in the direction of some not very good scores. Um, If someone can flag up some good, dark John Barry music for me, I would love to hear about it. I will go out and buy it and listen to it. It's quite interesting when they're stealing the car, he basically has like a key ring full of keys, and one of them fits. I wonder if that was kind of... Yeah, I think that was the. There's, there's a, <laughs> All you needed was ten Anglia keys, and one of them would probably work. There's a similar sequence about seven years later, I think, in the Samurai, the Melville movie, oh, yeah, okay. where he has to steal a car, and he reaches into his pocket and takes out this massive, massive, <laughs> massive bunch of keys, and he's got about you know sixty or seventy of them on them of them on there, and he has to kind of patiently try one key oh, right, okay. after another, and one of them will fit. Uh-huh. So I think maybe you know in 1960 the templates were quite limited. Yeah, yeah. So after a brief visit to the police station um, where we get some kind of expositionary conversation and we get the first inkling that uh, Johnny hasn't insured his car, so he's in trouble, um, he heads home. He gets a bus home, goes home to his flat, which I've got notes saying, great set location, question mark, because it's a really good set. Yeah, it's definitely a set, but yeah. Like even the, even the, the hallway, hallway feels yeah, like yeah. a you know mm. production design is really good in this. All the interiors are really nicely crafted mm. sets that feel authentic and lived in. You know, and they they never jar with that. You know, sometimes in uh, movies of this period, you get that strange sensation that the interior and the exterior don't match up. Yeah. Actually, saying that the other day, I watched Hobson Shaw. And uh, Jason, in that, Jason Statham's sister is supposed to live in those flats off Petticoat Lane. Right. And it go, he goes up to uh, 
the door of a council flat and then walks into this palatial interior <laughs> where she's like got like uh, gun racks hidden in the walls and stuff I was like there's no the council won't even let you put up tiles without <laughs> filling in a request form let alone like a gun rack this film it's a very solid transition yeah. interior to exterior and I, I just like all the little details like you know the, the in the hallway outside is flat there's like a pram and bits of bits, yeah, yeah. odds and ends that people leave in the hallway and his his flat itself has got really nicely kind of average furniture and, and deco- yeah, yeah, decor it. and you realise yeah he's you know it's it's dressed to look like the flat who's not a terribly successful salesman you no, know he's a working class guy isn't he you know that's the thing I I think you kind of forget in this period working class guys wore shirts and ties to work yeah, and, and waistcoats and waistcoats and, yeah. and jackets and come he came home and put his took his jacket off but kept the shirt and tie on and just put on his cardigan mm. over the top as his kind of evening attire there was still a f- sort of formality to the I do the like dress. his evening cardigan <laughs> yes. I might I might I might take that habit on <laughs> yeah. I've got a cardigan like that, that I think sure. I'll wear in the evenings but you just wear it like with a pair of pants like <laughs> Lebowski or something <laughs> Walk, walking around the house I, I like all the little things as well as the decor I like all the little things in conversation that, that suggest without hammering home that they're living quite frugally yeah. the fact that he kind of gives her a treat of a free sum from the office yeah, and um, they've got no cigarettes left when he wants to have a smoke and yeah yeah they smoke the last of the pack and he picks one out of the flower pot and still makes a joke about mm. oh the cigarettes are blooming nicely we meet elizabeth sellers the actress playing his wife anne who is quite a, a well-experienced actor at this time um i think after this she seemed to move more into tv but um it's an interesting choice i find she's quite regal and quite well spoken and it gives their relationship the feeling that she's married below herself slightly. Yeah, I mean, there's a scene that I, I just love coming up like later on, but yeah. yeah she seems more intelligent and emotionally intelligent, and she seems to be the, the one kind of, you know, emotionally holding things together in the relationship. But I think what, what, where this film, one of the things I really liked about this film was the female characters and how they're not just kind of plus ones, you know, like Anne, the wife has quite a lot to say for herself yeah. and is pretty much on on the nose with her observations of her husband. Mm. And later on, this uh, teenage girl, Jackie, that we meet as well, by the end of the film, her arc, she's become much more self-aware and is stepping out of the shadows of the men in her life. And I think there's something quite brave about the women in this. I, I, I'm less keen on the way that Jackie is characterised, but yeah, I think you're spot on with Anne. I think it's it's partly the way that she looks as well. She she's got that slightly, should we say, well-bred look with a slightly weaker chin. Yeah, she looks like um, she looks like a royal. She has an air of uh, Grace Kelly about her. You know, who's quite famous for being an actress that married into the Monaco monarchy. <laughs> it's it's unfortunate that their children have um, uh, their son has a fake voice. Did you notice that? No, has he been dubbed? I his first few lines make me think, oh, dubbed. It's unfortunate. I saw that. Have you seen the big train sketch from years ago? It's just about the Billy Piper fan club, and it's set in a fifties household. Oh, right. And just as an aside, the children have terribly dubbed voices. Oh, okay. I'd seen that quite recently, and I, that suddenly came to mind when I was watching the Sun. Like, Hello, Daddy. <laughs> oh, yeah. But then I'm not sure. Sorry, that's a bit snarky um, and unnecessary. I thought there's a really nice little uh, line in there where you hear the little boy say, Mummy, could I have a drink of water? And she says, No, you can't. Go back, <laughs> Go to, back to bed. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Oh, 50s parenting. The actual content of the scene is that Johnny is worried, um, but he does not confess to Anne that 
he doesn't have insurance for the car. He tells her it's been stolen, am I right? Yeah, he tells her it's been stolen and he's been to the police station and the police say that they recover 80% of stolen vehicles within 48 hours or something. And so she's quite reassured by that fact. But what we later find out is he's quite panicked because, you know, his whole life is hinging on this car, car, basically. It's the one thing that could change his status. It could improve his work prospects you know the very nature of having a car for him as a salesman could dramatically increase his potential for promotion within the company which i I kind of get the feeling is something that he needs judging by his figures and i guess in the next scene we find out how that affects him he makes a sales call and arrives late to meet a mr pennington at a department store yeah yeah. played by john the measurer yeah he's kind of in and out isn't he yeah but he absolutely steals the scene yeah yeah. i have to to say john the measurer appearing in anything i watch increases the amount by which I like it by about 25%. <laughs> so even one scene is enough to, to set He's me really smiling. He's really good in it as He's well. fantastic. He just says to him, you know, we've known each other for a long time. Don't try and sell me so hard. Mm. Just really puts him in it. And you can see John is still trying to... Uh, keep a jolly face on it even though he's been put in his place yeah it? he's really he's really embarrassing and trying trying too hard and that sort of jolly <laughs> yeah. g- nervous giggle that he has you, know, the, you can feel the desperation starting to seep out of him but the measure just balances it perfectly it's just that you can see the slight irritation and impatience and but he's covering it with absolute professionalism and mm-hmm. patience and just letting this man and then just quietly putting him in his place yeah, and walking yeah. away he's not rude he's not polite takes the sample it's quite a beautiful set that as well. You can see the uh, painted backdrop. Oh, is it? Yeah, about I, I, halfway into the set to give it the, the added depth. Oh uh, yeah. Again, yeah. I I just assumed it was a location. So we're back at the office after this. He's called in to see uh, Mr. Berger. Mr. Berger Junior. Junior. Did you notice who Mr. Berger Junior was? No. One of the most for people of a certain age, one of the most famous voices in Britain. It's Peter Jones, the voice of the book in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Ah, okay. Yeah, I mean, you sort of get this hint of a relationship between John and Mr. Berger Sr. Um, Later on, we get a little hint that he was in the army. um, And, you know, maybe there's some kind of old connection there that's carried him through this far. It's quite nicely filmed. Um, I mean, it's good basic film craft that you get right in close on their faces when Mm -hmm. Johnny tells his his lie about having just gotten a car at the end yeah, of the yeah, scene. Yeah. It's a brilliant performance again, isn't it? Because you can see like the lie just gets stuck in his throat a little bit and then he has to push through and make it convincing and back it up. And yeah. he's propping up the lie. And he's quite an honest man, I think. Which is, I think, a nice sort of subtext to the film is that he's an honest man and he just wants things to be done right and he wants his car back and that's it. Yeah, and there's also the fact that, that he's not built to be a salesman because because of that. He's not built to lie and he's not built to kind of bullshit people yeah, and, and yeah, get yeah. them to, but he's, because he's honest, he, he finds it hard and that's why he's not well, pretty his good his method at is it. kind of pressuring as well, isn't it? And mm. Berger Jr. says to him, you know, there's new methods of salesmanship, you know, you can convince people instead of just putting the, putting the pressure on. Mm. And I think that there is something about all this pressure that's building up on John that kind of informs his decisions later on in the film you know we feel his pressure at home his pressure at work and then his frustration at just losing his car and not being able to just take it back straight away Mm. there's another bit at the end of this scene one of those things i was i was mentioning before it's more prominent here the scene ends and it holds on berger jr 
looking at the figures and looking quite doubtful after Johnny's left the scene and left the room. Yeah, I mean, he says to him, you know, oh, your figures are low, and he's like, oh, it's, I, I work in a poor area, you know, it's different at Christmas, and he's like, well, here's, here's your Christmas figures. <laughs> you know, it's just, oh, you, you feel for him, don't you? Mm. And there's a really nice use of sound in the very next scene where he's out in the office, um, and suddenly you've got people, like, pushing past, leaving, and it's kind of the noise is just kind of amped up slightly, and yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really slightly... It's a little bit staccato, isn't it? Sort of yeah, it's kind of jabbing at you. High heels <laughs> and phones ringing and yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's all this stuff going on as he's fretting and calling the police. Um, and in the background you have like a, a quite an unpleasant little detail of Spink handing in his ton of orders. <laughs> yeah, in contrast to Johnny's like thin sheaf. Mm. Yeah, it's really nice kind of like background detail to, yeah, yeah. to build the mood. Um, and then he crosses over the road to speak to Alfie Barnes, the newspaper salesman played by Mervyn Johns who you've seen in everything made in Britain it's a tricky scene I was that was the first set that I thought looked like a set oh yeah okay slightly slummy flat that Barnes lives in it's the first time I thought it was a little bit overdressed and didn't feel quite right spatially next we're in the Victory Cafe Mm -hmm. where there is jazz and 'er ne'er-do-well Ted's and tits a, a blonde bombshell yeah <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah it's it's all the stuff that the young people like is all mm-hmm. in this scene um, you know Cypriot cafe owner yeah, yeah it's all there in the credits he's just credited as the Cypriot the Cypriot <laughs> oh, no. sounds like he's in a Guy Ritchie movie <laughs> have you been down to see the Cypriot it's a clunky scene full of lots of slightly awkward colour and I don't know how well any of this played at the time but for me it's a little bit awkward Cummings goes to the Victory Cafe. He was directed there by Alfie Barnes. Um, and he goes there and hangs around whilst there's a bunch of kind of sniggering, guffawing teddy boys in the background. Well, he's, the he's been box. told that Tommy stole his car, so that's he wants to just talk to him and say, like, just give me my car back. You know, he's trying to be as direct as possible in mm. resolving this situation, isn't he? So yeah. but they do take the piss. Yeah, and this I find this a bit tricky again i don't know how well this material actually played at the time but watching it now it's like tommy's taking the piss and the jokes that he's cracking aren't funny at all on yeah, any yeah. level um, i quite liked it that he did confess to taking the car and then told this tall tale about driving it to edinburgh and leaving it there and yeah, yeah. I, I just i just wish that when they when they have kind of characters like this they give them some good material so that it's not so much of a chore for the viewer mm. i do find it a little bit you know, he exudes no menace whatsoever. He's not funny. He's not clever. <laughs> yeah. um, and given that it's Adam Faith and it's it's supposed to be like kind of like a charismatic young man, he's he's got really terrible dialogue, especially mm. when you know he leaves and gets on his bike and says, "I don't even know this comedy." Starts accusing me of pitching his car. I've never seen a rotten car. And if you think so, you better tell the coppers. But don't tell this me. This is the first time we really get some proper time with Tommy to try and work out what kind of uh, spirit he is and you know he comes off as a bit of a dick and like I say definitely not very smart it's a shame because he's built up so well in the opening sequence that you think he might have some menace or you know he might be an interesting character hmm. but he's kind of a wet lettuce throughout and from this scene onwards hmm. I just I, I don't know I just had a tough time with the character throughout I'll flag up different bits as we go, but yeah, sure, sure. For this scene, like, he's got he's got terrible dialogue, terrible material. He's not really anything of anything. He's quite a pretty face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh shit, yeah. I know what you're saying. Um... And Carol White, who's famously, you know, 
one of the British movie sex bombs of the 60s is there purely, it seems, in this scene for visual interest, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think the idea... Isn't the idea that she is Tommy's girlfriend that Lionel has taken? Well, yeah, Lionel Meadows turns up and whisks her off in his in his flash car, despite the fact that Tommy and her seem to be a couple and seem to be quite intimate. So I guess that's set up um, to be explored later. Mm. Um, and then... Go on, I know you want to talk about the scene outside the outside the cafe. Yeah, I quite like that. I thought it was slightly overcut, but I liked um I, I thought I liked the ambition of it, you know, it felt like a really nice yeah editing experiment. Well I was expecting you to go into rhapsodies about that, because it is quite bold. Yeah, um, no, I, I liked it. It just caught me by surprise, you know, it was mm. maybe some jazzy editing. I, I liked it a lot. It was um good jazzy editing. I felt it went on three times as long as it needed yeah, to. There's some repeats in there. Yeah. But... The longer it went on, the more you, you realise how it you know it kind of gave itself away how it wasn't really working spatially how it, it wasn't was... shot for that as well yeah yeah but i mean is it worth just sort of putting it into like context for time you know this is the point when motorcycle gangs were you know patrolling the streets of england and i think there was a fear of motorcycles and kids on bikes and you know this is just before we get the the mods as well. Oh, sure. It? It's just, yeah. I think maybe grown-ups going to see this film were probably terrified of teenagers. Mm. It'd be like us going to watch a film about, like, hoodies or something. <laughs> yeah, but you're not, though, are you? I mean, I think that's something that movies trade on just to allow themselves to have stock villains Mm-mm. based on whatever the latest yeah, of course. folk... Torn from the headlines. Folk devil's moral panic thing is. Yeah, that's um, I'd, I'd imagine most adults watching this would go, oh, it's a fair like approximation kids. of some kids. <laughs> On bikes. I know some kids and a lot of them are all right, though. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you sure we live in this country, in this era. <laughs> um, I've got a note here saying that things are moving fast at this point. Yeah. Um, the scenes get quite short and quite choppy, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I like that. Mm. There's something uh, panicked about it now. Yeah, it gets the pace gets quite frantic towards the end. I I couldn't make coherent notes <laughs> towards the end because there was so little to to latch onto. It's yeah, fast, you, isn't it? Yeah, but you get uh, another late sales call to a beauty parlor. Which oh ends, my god, he's an hour late, isn't he? Yeah, and it ends disastrously when he loses his rag and insults one of the. <laughs> yeah, there's a really nice uh, sound design here that with the bus idling just carries over from the interior to exterior as well which i thought was really nice mm. and then tommy goes to meadow's garage and finally half an hour into the movie um peter sellers i'd imagine was the the main draw for a lot of people yeah, yeah. makes a full appearance he does uh, yeah and he's sort of <laughs> i mean i don't know uh, how you feel about this but i really like his performance i like him kind of running aw- not running away with the film i think it's richard todd's film from beginning to end and i really love his performance but i'm really happy when sellers is on screen as Lionel Meadows, I really like this character for him. I'm I'm less keen on the performance, but I think it's a byproduct of becoming less keen on Peter Sellers over time. Is that because you're kind of looking through all of his work? And I, cause for me, like Sellers has almost been distilled down to two <laughs> schools of thought. There's uh, Clouseau, you fool. There's that, or there's stuff he does with Kubrick. Right. I I've got I've seen a lot more, so I've got like a slightly broader range i know that like obviously the pink panther films are most people's entry point into it of a generation you know they used to be on tv uh, yeah and half term and uh, you know summer holidays they used to be on you know every couple of months they'd be one or the other yeah i have always subscribed to the peter sellers as godlike genius um thing and you know fabulous actor and a highlight in every film that he's in Mm. 
but I think it's just uh, obviously it's time passing and and fashions of acting change and how you how you view people's performances change based on you know styles of acting having developed over the years mm, true. and i do find a lot of his stuff verging on pastiche verging on caricature and parody and i did think those touches of this um i thought like the first half of this performance where he's kind of tightly controlled and where meadows is you know talking through his teeth <laughs> yeah. and, and I did feel it was it wasn't that well modulated a performance. I felt it was like you know your your archetype sleazy northern cabaret performer type of <laughs> type performance just translated into a criminal role. Mm. Um, I'm not that crazy about it. Um, I just I, feel like he he reminds me of people that I've known that like are really anxious and have like high blood pressure and get really stressed mm. and have kind of reached a point where they're able to take control of that and they feel quite comfortable but it doesn't take much to push them back into their (laughs) their old ways and i think like he just for me he just kind of nailed that you know like he'd reduced himself to a simmer when he's probably spent his whole life at the boil up to this point and he was just you know he's finally comfortable he's got all the pieces in place nothing's going to undo his kind of very small criminal empire and this kind of scam he has with you know retagging the cars and making a profit on the side and it just felt like he had it all kind of laid out he's got like the teenage girlfriend who he can walk into the club on his arm and you know to be seen as the successful gangster a la cray brothers Mm. something like that and there's just this one guy you know he keeps referring to him as the lipstick peddler um, who's threatening that tiny empire and I, i liked it that you know he went from simmering just to like back onto the boil i i didn't feel any of that i I, next time i watch it i'll have to try and keep that in mind it just felt like fairly one-dimensional sleaze to me and there's there's a lot of kind of he's really sleazy isn't he yeah don't necessarily see how he would be so successful in business when he's so clearly a distrustworthy you know you see him dealing with with a with a a female customer Mm -mm. And, you know, he's, he's apparently it works and people are taken in. But you're watching this character thinking, so sleazy. He's so, yeah, so right. he's, even immaculately dressed, he's kind of like dripping with snake oil. It's horrible. <laughs> I just have a little note here where um, BSL is, says to um, Jack, he says to her, oh, you're naughty. You're <laughs> naughty. <laughs> that was really sleazy. There's something about the um, the garage business that you just get a tiny bit of in that scene where... You know, he has like a hundred customers on account. So, you know, he's giving credit out to mm-hmm. the community. So people are dependent on him. And, yeah. You know, I think that it's a, it's a different time as well, isn't it? Where a small business would, would be like the center of the community. Yeah, and it would work as part of the community. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess it's worth mentioning at this point about the roles. Yeah, this is a really good point, actually. Yeah, apparently um, Todd was initially playing the uh, Meadows role and Sellers was playing the Johnny Cummings role. Uh, and I think Sellers wanted to play against type, wanted to play against his comedy background and wanted wanted to be the villain. So managed to convince everyone to swap the roles. Would have been interesting to see Todd in the Meadows role because Todd was, was considered like, you know, a heroic actor. He was a, yeah, a D-Day yeah. veteran who'd been a hero in Dam Busters and stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And he'd played like Robin Hood and Rob Roy. He was pretty heroic. Yeah, it would have been interesting either way around. But it's it's interesting to see Todd as a kind of a small man struggling there is something about you know actors playing against type and whether that works because you you have so much investment like sellers as soon as he comes on screen i feel like 
there's a, a muscle memory smile waiting to come back through because, you know, I've had so many like pleasurable experiences watching him, you know, even, you know, being there, I think is the one that most of us go to for his kind of straightest role. And with this, I was still expect. there's a couple of points where I laughed anyway, mm. when he's talking, there's one scene where he's talking about the lipstick peddler and, um, and then uh, Tommy Towers. And then Jackie's like, what are you all trying to do to me? You're trying to ruin me. And that really made me laugh. Well, that's that's why it doesn't work for me because it it feels like you know another Peter Sellers, you know another Peter Sellers kind of character. It's performance. a character, yeah, yeah, yeah and it's and not even character performance, like a character pastiche performance sometimes, mm-hmm. which can slip into comedy if you if you and it's such a big character as well. Yeah, that's it. He's he you know because everyone else is sort of playing it really straight. Uh, yeah, apart from Richard Todd, who is you know has really big range in this, I think everyone else is pretty like comfortably one note you know they're just like very simple characters mm. i had a note that it felt like a radio performance just because it was so voice based but with you know with a distinctive look added so it's like a radio performance it was quite broad as radio performances mm-hmm. have to be but then he's just got like a single you know sleazy light entertainer suit and, <laughs> and spiv mustache look and that kind of that's the character but I think he he sort of pulls that apart as well. By the end, you know, as he's kind of coming back on the boil, you know, that he has this whole thing with Jackie where he's like, I don't want you drinking, don't drink, it's ugly. And then we see him later on where he, he finally gives up and he hits the sauce himself. So, like, this idea that he's... But again, that felt really, really... It didn't feel subtle to me. That felt really theatrical. Yeah, but like all of his clothes are disheveled. He's but it's exactly tie, yeah, and he's, you know, and he's, he's back to the kind of... the the northern lad from the streets ready to like fight his way out of trouble i thought i thought that was a nice kind of deconstruction of uh you know of the character okay can we talk about meadows and jackie because i i yeah i think it's fucking it's, dark man that I, I i think they sort of they bullet point it in the script but like it's a horrible once you piece it all together it's really horrible but it's, it feels really incoherent to me, the whole thing. I, I do get a nasty whiff of kind of like, like Jackie's there in order for Carol White to be seductive and sit around in her bra for a bit. And the script is guiding you towards those situations. Yeah, but I think like when she does, there's a scene where he's like, come on, love, come on. And she takes a jumper off. Like You see her in a bra, but like there's, there's nothing alluring about her. Her look is one of broken, like a, a child broken by men. And I think all the way through we get these subtle hints that she was in in some sort of remand centre for, you know, wayward girls, and he's plucked her out of there somehow to keep her out of prison, but is controlling her, and, and she's basically looking for somebody, another man to help, and Tommy is like a pathetic teenage boy that can't also enable her to get out of this cycle of, you know... I, I, I see the pieces are there, but they don't come together for me to be a particularly well-drawn character and because of that it feels it does feel a bit exploitative i think yeah if i'm honest it was kind of second time round because you know i was caught up in the drama with the men but the second time round i really appreciated the female characters more and was better able to piece together jackie's story mm. you know any kind of decent human being would offer some kind of support or, or an escape and obviously meadows is just like keeping her as a kind of teenage sex toy well i think he thinks that he's helping her he thinks that he's supporting her i think in his moral system he's actually helping her out because otherwise she'd be as he says she'd be on her back somewhere yeah, in yeah. some you know, back alley or something 
but yeah, this is this is a key scene for Tommy as well, um, establishing how Meadows has him completely under his thumb. This scene, which is a big kind of introduction to Peter Sellers and his character and his uh, relationships with the teenagers in his life. One is his uh, supposed girlfriend, and the other is his uh, lackey. Yeah, Tommy has has been kind of. Not 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 entirely sure where Tommy's character is going to go, because um, he seemed like an arrogant, arrogant youth um, at the Victory Cafe. But then when you see him with Meadows, um, he's completely ground down. Um, yeah, but I mean, you know, Meadows is kind of saying to him, you know, I told you not to steal cars within five miles of here. You know, why did you go roughing up the old boy? You know, you wait for my instructions. You don't think for yourself. It's kind of that's the line, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's true. But if but if Tommy were as you know as arrogant and and forthright and and headstrong as as you would expect a teenage character played by Adam Faith to be, you know, you would have stuck. Yeah, you know, obviously you would have towed the line, but you would have stuck up for him. So, oh, I don't know what you're making such a fuss about, and you would have got. But he's sure. really he's absolutely crushed. Yeah, yeah, and I mean literally crushed. You know. Lionel crushes yeah. his hand in the in the, in the record solid lid of a record player. Mm. But I wonder if this isn't supposed to infer just how brutal Lionel can be or has been in the past. You know, the fact that everybody's quite scared and intimidated. Yeah, it's it's just an interesting choice to make Tommy so weak because all of the other people that he deals with day to day, they get flashes of it as well. You mm. know, um, they and but they all seem to be able to stand up to them for themselves up to a point. You know, when he goes to see the other garage owner, he initially yeah, yeah. kind of mouths off to him, but you know, he is cowed after after a while. Yeah, but yeah, that's it. it just feels odd that Tommy, being such being such an arrogant teenager, is is automatically you know he's he's got nothing in him. Hmm. And then Meadows visits Alfie. He pops into the pub where outside which Alfie sells papers. I really like this scene. He sort of orders a drink, and he's sort of really nimble as he nips that. You know, you remember when pubs had out outside toilets, you know, and the tr- kind of trough that led into the gutter, mm. and he kind of walks out into the backyard, and then ni- nimbly sort of leaps over the fence and goes in through the uh, the back door. I really like that little sequence. You know, yeah. he's providing himself with an alibi. You know, we can kind of see his thought process. There's a really nice cross cutting between this and and Johnny watching out of the window as well. Oh yeah, good point. Ends good point. with that that really nice cut to um just meadows thumping alfie yeah, yeah. straight into it it's, yeah um, yeah and then we have we get a crushed terrapin here. crushed terrapin i think is... that's a real terrapin don't you that goes under the heel i don't think there's any fancy I... F- fx work there i was like oh they just killed that terrapin i don't like to think about it that way i just like to think that it was faked but it being 1960 it's really horrific so as lionel's crushing a terrapin we also get the uh, final straw for john back yeah. in the office yeah he gets fired doesn't he yeah it's i've got a note saying that you cut to spink's knowing reaction first um and it's a nice bit of sort of character playing spink's barely disguised kind of glee and avarice johnny's looking out the window isn't he watching lionel go th- from into the pub and then he's trying to work out what's going on when he sees alfie going up the stairs yeah and then and he gets then called into called in and sacked um and he's, he's allowed to stay on in the stock room for a week or so until he can find another job. He has to hand over his accounts, doesn't he? To yeah, Spink. It's, a, it's a really difficult scene because you've got, you know, Spink knows what's going on and he's, he can barely disguise how excited he yeah, is to, yeah, to grab it. hold of the and accounts. John and pulls up a chair and says, let's, let's talk about yeah, it Yeah, it's now a good time, old boy. Mm. And, you know, John does put on, put on the mask and is polite and starts handing over his career, basically, isn't yeah. he? 
And then um, as Johnny leaves the office, um, John Barry comes up with this music for the discovery of Alfie's body. Shane, discuss. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's it's just, I, I'm sure it may have worked better at the time, but for now it just feels like show tunes music for the death of a character. Oh, I think it's all about counterpoint. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. But Alfie's gassed himself, hasn't he? He's finally, uh, he's finally... He's finally turned on the gas. Yeah. And then we have the, the break-in scene. Yeah, there's a very odd cut in this. Um, it's one of those ones that, I mean, it's not a deal breaker, but yeah. it's it's where uh, Johnny's walking in darkness in a wide, mm-hmm. and then you cut as the lights come on, and it's another wide that's framed slightly different, where you reveal Meadows leaning against a car. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. And it jars slightly for me, but I don't know if that's there's a good. An, yeah, thing. there's another one later in the scene as well when he sort of steps, he steps forward, and flaps yeah. his tie. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but I kind of like those cuts. I like. A I like Nouvelle Vague. I mean. Well, yeah, I like. I like those in Martin Scorsese movies. Like nobody seems to use them anymore except Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Things that, technically speaking, are are a bit wrong, mm-hmm. but the fact that they're a bit wrong gives the scene a bit more energy. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, there's a lot of kind of um, non-continuity of cutting of dialogue, and I watched The Irishman recently, and he does it again in that as he does in every film. Like when he cuts to another take within within a, a conversation or, sure. or even a monologue, like it's a slight change of tone or it's just a few mm-hmm. frames too short so you know it's a cut and you know it's a change but, yeah, yeah. but it just it just livens things up a bit yeah, okay. rather than just being smooth and continuous and, and, and perfect mm-hmm. I quite like this where we um, in this scene so Cummings has he's, John Cummings has broken into Peter Sellers garage you know he's like crossed the line mm. breaking and entering and you know Sellers is like I can have you on that I can have you <laughs> and instead he's just like you know, look around. Can you see a car? No, right. Fuck off, then, yeah. isn't he? Basically, and then when uh, he digs his heels in Cummings, he's like, "I want my car." Like that's it. I want my. Energy. <laughs> he's just like, right, Cliff, sort him out. And he <laughs> takes a proper walloping, doesn't he? Yeah. Not on the face, Cliff. Yeah. What's you, he called? Use him? your loaf. Yeah, use your loaf. <laughs> um, Jackie's watching this, um, and she's very shocked and upset. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. I guess because she's never met. Cummings before and it must be something that she's used to yeah just it me. gives her a little bit of sympathy for him because he's kind of now under Lionel's glare as well mm. but also maybe it helps her break her kind of I don't know what do you, what do you call it? what's that um not Stockholm syndrome is it Stockholm yeah, syndrome yeah. so maybe you know helps her kind of break out of that frame a little of mind. bit of that as well you know yeah. seeing something so ugly I mean it's a proper like it's kicking, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It really sort of fucking goes to work on the body, basically. Mm-hmm. So the next sequence is uh, uh, John Cummings at home with his wife. But it's really clever that the inspector has also somehow been involved in this because he's the one that's deposited him back home yeah. the next morning. You know, after a beating, he's still trying to get dressed and get back to work and, uh, you know, w- wants to try and save his job. His whole life is slipping through his fingers now. Yeah. Um, and Anne has kind of realised how far this obsession is taking him. Um, he's getting severely beaten. It's it's about time to confront him. He's obsessed, him. isn't he? Yeah, yeah, it's time to confront him. And um, this this is what's nice about this scene is that Anne steps over to the window and it's kind of 
uh, a repeat on the earlier scene where uh, where John is fighting his corner with her and trying to convince her that he's right. Yeah. And this time she takes his place and she kind of, I mean, I don't think we can do it justice. We just have to let it play this, this chunk of dialogue that she has. I want to tell you about last night. Please, Johnny, it doesn't matter. I don't care about that old car, not now. You don't care about it. I do. It's right there in front of my eyes. Don't you remember all the time and effort and hard cash we put into getting that car? That's why I went back to Meadows' garage. Because that car is worth it. I have to have it, Anne. Don't you understand? It's going to make all the difference. Yes, Johnny, I can see it all right. If you want to know, I see a whole lot more than one car. I see a whole procession of cars. Everything in life you ever wanted that was going to make all the difference. What do you mean? Pipe dreams, Johnny. It's like those glasses you wear. You don't really need them. They're no more real than that photographic studio you were going to start. Every penny you ever got from the army thrown away. Now, wait a minute, Anne. That's not fair. You always said yourself it was a good idea. If I'd only gone into it alone instead of taking on a partner. Oh, Johnny, it didn't work. It wasn't practical. It's like our cottage in the country. Every summer, a new plan, a new set of drawings, another dream. This one's going to turn into a nightmare. Let it go, Johnny, before something worse happens to you. And to us. I don't understand. I could have done these things. I only made one mistake. I, I didn't hang on. I didn't see it through. Because you're not made that way. You're not tough enough, Johnny. You're not meant to push and shove your way through life. And I don't want you to, Johnny. I love you just as you are. It's unfortunate, but absolutely not a deal-breaker. It's a fantastically written scene. Yes, so and Anne's shot is played out on a very slow track into her. Yeah, yes. It's unfortunate that even though we were watching it on a very heavily compressed file, um, you can still see the focus goes yeah, yeah. at the end. It's, it's heartbreaking, that, isn't it? For it is. And I, think, I think standards of projection were a lot worse mm. back in the 50s. In the yeah, you can imagine some 60s. ropey old print going hand-to-hand -hand yeah. around Soho cinemas. 16mm prints in local cinemas mm. and stuff. But it is a terrible shame. And, and you can just hats off to them for still using it because it's, yeah, yeah. it's a fantastic take. It's probably take. the best take. Do you know who the focus puller was? No. Peter McDonald. Who is? The director of Rambo 3. Oh. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, corrupting uh, influence very even Very accomplished uh, <laughs> cinematographer in his own right. Right. Yeah, but I mean, this scene, you know, I was watching it and I was with John the whole way through. I felt the blood draining out of my body. I thought she was talking to me just for a minute. All my sort of failed ideas and to have someone that you love giving you that cold, hard truth. You know, it, I, yeah. I just felt heartbroken for him. It was It's such a good performance, like from both of them, you know, because he hears every word that she says, you know, you see that on his face. I don't think you, I don't think you have to necessarily feel that you're the same sort of person as him to, to feel the scene. I think for anybody to be told by their loved one, the harsh truths that they need to hear is always, is just un unbearable, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But she says to him, you know, you, she says, you know, I love you. I love you for who you are. But she says to him, like, you're just not made that way. Mm. Like, you're not the tough guy. Yeah, you're not meant to push and shove your yeah, way through life. Yeah, that's it. And again, this kind of underlines my 
slight feeling that you know she's she's the emotional superior in the relationship for yeah, sure. Definitely, she's definitely. absolutely in control. I don't mean mm. controlling, but she's yeah. she's the one who has to. She's take the, the anchor reins. for the family. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, then we have what yeah, a little sort of third act montage. montage. Yeah. yeah, it's really nice. Um, at work in the stop room, fretting at home, and the um, newsstand's closed. Obviously, we yes. see a little shot of the empty newsstand. Quite desolate, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Spink being smug. In the stock room, and then it, it kind of the clock's ticking as well. He's at home with the clock ticking, tick, tick, <laughs> tick, tock. And it segues into into the actual scene where Johnny finally loses his rag at work with Spink. Yeah, with Spink. Yeah, just <laughs> launches a solid wooden sample case. Crazy at him across it's the massive. room. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was going to hit him like square in the face, but yeah. And then he's just like, yeah, and you can you can tell him to shove the job as well, hmm. and kind of walks out. But then what I love about it is like it's a genuine impulse moment and he hasn't thought it through because yeah. then he just stood outside like oh shit <laughs> what do I do now so after this um, I mean both both of our notes reflect that things move at an incredible clip um, lots of short fragmented scenes moving the plot forward there's a really nice one I like with John in the pub looking at job ads and they all need a car like it's <laughs> it's really like each time he says with salesman needed with car, like each time it's a slap around the face, he's getting more and more frust- frustrated at just not having his car. You know, like he worked so hard to get the car, spent all of the money on the car, you know, insured it as best as he could afford the car, and then it's gone mm. like a week after he bought it. It was brand new. Um, eventually, in, in all of this, uh, Jackie ends up going back to Johnny and Anne's flat, um, and there's a fabulous scene there. Jackie. Completely out of place in in Johnny's flat, which which has been brilliantly set up as like this cosy nest of domesticity, yeah, yeah. and then you've got this kind of blonde, uh, bombshell, fallen woman sitting in the middle of yeah, it. And yeah, you just realise yeah. this this can't happen. This this mm. this is real kind of clash here. Yeah, but there's something really nice about Anne just saying to John's like, oh, we have to help her, and and she's like, do you think she is here to help you? But there's there's also the sense of of just the whole thing's just a hideous miscalculation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And he's only doing it in order to try and get his car back. And yeah, it's just yeah. like even even with Jackie just sitting in the middle of their of their lounge, it's kind of like their world is already turned upside down. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Meadows turns up. And he turns, <laughs> fucking kicks the door in, screaming, smashes something else to use as a stabbing weapon. Yeah, uh, and, it's it's. Um, but again, John's powerless in this scene. He he freezes yeah. and it's Anne that screams for help and alerts the neighbours and you know saves the day and but there's no there's no holds barred you know the the, the daughter comes to the door and, and it, the scene makes a point of showing her you know witnessing this and being upset yeah, by yeah. it um, Anne's as threatened by Meadows as Johnny is there's, there's no chivalry here at all is yeah, there yeah definitely and when he leaves he just shoves past her yeah um, it's, it's a really brutal scene isn't yeah, it really, it really is upsetting yeah and John, you know, all he can do is kind of comfort the kids. He doesn't know how to handle this situation. I think he mm. hasn't he hasn't reached that conclusion that he's going to have to kind of get his hands dirty. Yeah. I think he's avoiding it, to be honest. That's not the type of person he is. I, th- I think it's quite a common trait. You know, everyone feels big inside. You know, everyone thinks that if they, if they were ever, you know, encountered something on the street or if they're ever threatened in some way that you'd be able to stand up for yourself yeah, yeah. you know i know i do but then whenever you're confronted with any genuine danger you find mm-hmm. your bottom lip trembling <laughs> and you find yourself kind of shriveling frozen. inside yeah, and, yeah. and not just frozen but actually mm-hmm. terrified and mm-hmm. you realize how how much of a leap it is to be able to be that person that you think you are and, it, and, and it's it's still that i think for for johnny 
And then Anne issues Johnny with the, an ultimatum. You have to stop doing this. Can't you see how far it's gone? Yeah, yeah, Something's breaking into our home and threatening us with a yeah. broken vase. Johnny's still, oh, I've, I've got to see it through. I never see anything through. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Scott. Doesn't she say we won't be here when you get back? Or yeah. Something? It's one of those kind exactly. of... Exactly. The next really interesting scene, and again, I might be kind of flogging a dead horse here, is um, Jackie goes back to Tommy's, and Tommy is a broken man. Mm. injured and crushed by Lionel in spirit again. Yeah, his hand's all bandaged up now, isn't it? Um, Jackie seems to like this. The The suggestion seems to be that Jackie likes kind of vulnerability and, and she likes... Well, I think it's the first time Tommy's honest as well about what he's capable of, you know. He says to her, you know, I'm not, I'm not smart like you, I don't have your brains, you know. He basically says to her, how do we get out of this? I need your help. Mm. Not the other way. I'm not, I can't save you, but maybe you can help me save us. Yeah. I my notes suggest that I was less impressed with that, but I'm not going to argue the same points again. I I'm my feeling is that you know you get from the way that she tags along with, with Johnny and the way that she's kind of sympathetic to Tommy that that she likes vulnerability. She likes vulnerable men rather than domineering. Yeah, but people I think like Meadows. But what we get with her backstory is that she's probably been dominated by men her whole life, and somebody that's willing to be open and honest with her is a better better option. Mm. There's something very, 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 very small and very surprising, which I wasn't expecting at this stage in the film, which is something new visually. You get an exterior daytime wide of the flats when you cut to the next day. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, and then you, it's carefully planned, you know, you pan along and track in on, mm-hmm. on the flat, on the window, but, and yeah. then you cut to Johnny inside. And mm. it's quite, quite refreshing. Not many films, even to this day, will give you something fresh yeah, yeah. visually in terms of an establishing shot. Mm. Um and I think those uh, those blocks look really nice as well, don't they? Yeah. They'd be brand new at this point, those kind of tower blocks. And then it's got my favourite edit in the entire film. <laughs> Where Jackie comes thundering up the stairs yeah. with Cliff. It's it's a really confident change of situation and location um, in a handful of cuts, which are really complex in describing, but work really fluidly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's really nice. Cut from Anne closing the door, um, and then you overlap overlap Jackie shouting Tommy Tommy and then you cut to Tommy in bed reacting to that <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then you cut to Jackie running upstairs with Cliff in pursuit yeah, it's, it's really nice great it? yeah but I think it is that sort of it's a shot in the arm isn't it because this is the third act now and, yeah and it is like balls to the wall <laughs> now it just doesn't so there's one point where it slows right down and that you just hold your breath for like three minutes wondering what's going to happen yeah I've it's got really confident filmmaking here isn't it I did like the interrogation with McKinnon and Williams. I yeah, thought it was true. a very, very polite British take on a film noir interrogation, wasn't yeah, yeah. it? I like the way he just sort of sits down right behind him. There's yeah. something weird about somebody sitting behind you, isn't there? Like talking into your ear. I did I did put a note in that there's so much going on here, so much back and forth with all the different supporting characters that you do lose track of Johnny's obsession a bit. And I've said that it, it seems a bit silly when he's with Williams at the garage again, yeah, yeah. still bleating about his car. For a film that's focused on his obsession and, and kind of makes that feel rightly central, it kind of loses loses that a bit. Yeah. And I don't know if that's deliberate. Well, I think the point is that the police aren't working at John's pace and then they don't have the same focus that he does on one single car. Mm. And I think that's why we kind of go back the last time because it, John feels... And it, the car's in there at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's behind those gates. And uh, there's that really nice sequence where they're getting all the stolen cars out and I don't know if you noticed this but how fast everybody drives in this film <laughs> they're all like hammering around London aren't they yeah, like screeching around corners yeah. yeah you know imagine that city when there wasn't so much traffic there you know I was like um, 
that film performance just for the driving shots where you see like that dirty old London before they cleaned it up mm. and those empty streets and it must have been quite nice just to roar around those kind of cobble streets sliding mm. sideways and you know big old bathtub cars as yeah. well swinging on like deep suspension it must have been really fun Johnny sat in the Victory Cafe I did like it the the scene with the Cypriot yeah, owner yeah. coming over and offering him some very heartfelt advice yeah, he says it's, it's like, okay to be scared of these yeah, guys I'm scared of these guys I'm scared you, of them. yeah, yeah. It's a really nice moment, isn't it? There are some really nice cross-cutting between Johnny and Meadows as they as they fume, yeah. um, but with terrible music underscoring it. Oh, okay. <laughs> I really like this bit. This is the bit where, like, like I say, they were they both sat dead still. The music's really big. My heart was thundering, and I felt like I was holding my breath, waiting to see what would happen next. This was the point where I was like, "Oh, Matt's got to watch this. This is <laughs> this is incredible. He's going to be like gushing over John Barry. We're going to be talking about Sellers and uh, no." So then we have the final confrontation fight, which I've made a note. No music. Yeah, no which music. Makes it really brutal. Yeah, it's really cool, man. But I just want to say, like, so we we have this moment where they're waiting. And then there's the uh, the John Barry is like the the horns are blaring and everything, but I love how uh, John Cummings character. I love how he like he's reached that moment where he's made a decision like he's gonna fuck it, he's gonna go in and do whatever he duff this guy up if he mm. has to to get his car back, and I love like that moment where you can see it in his eyes that he's made that decision and he stands bolt upright, knocks his chair flying, and then he realises he's in, he's in a cafe with a load of pensioners, <laughs> so he picks the chair up and puts it back and stuff. You know, he's sort of really considerate at the same point. But I thought his performance was so good in that. It reminds me of, like, that moment in Heat, where Neil McCauley has got away with it. He's got yeah. everything he needs, and he's getting away with it. They're taking the car as they're driving. Yeah, yeah, and you're just looking at his face, and you can see it crosses across his mind and then he's like he's thinking, no no it's alright I can't right, let that right. go and this had that same sort of power I was like oh he's going to do it <laughs> I was like oh no he's really out of his depth let's see how this goes and then they go into that fight and it's like well he kind of breaks down the door breaks down a barricaded window to <laughs> yeah, get yeah. in and then uses a piece of wood from the barricade it's as a weapon with nails sticking out of yeah. it but what the film does which it's done a couple of times is go back to a location and repeat the kind of the action, but everything's changed in it. So we've had like John and his wife in the flat mm. where they switch positions for, you know, a little reality check. And now we've got the repeat of John breaking into Lionel's garage and like the tables have turned again. He's like coming. He knows what he's doing, knows what he wants. Yeah, it's lovely. Seeing them face off like one has a crowbar and the other one has a plank of wood with nails sticking out. It's like, yeah. oh shit, this is going to hurt. It's a good, it's a good brutal fight, and it's. I do like the way that it's not too choreographed. Yeah, it feels in, really realistic, doesn't it? In the sense that you know, obviously, you'd have to block the whole thing out, but it's not blocked out and shot and cut to within an inch of its life. No, so it's things really chaotic. Yeah, things feel like disjunctive and and odd and and. But there's a scene where like John picks up a, like ch- like chains, <laughs> wraps yeah. them around. Around and yanks just, him across the room with it <laughs> and he goes fucking flying back like with such violence like he's losing his footing slipping on the oil mm. crashes into a hydraulic lift you know that starts coming down and then like John's trapped under there it's like it's really terrifying yeah and none of this is you know it's extremely violent but none of it's overly dramatised there's no yeah. there's no music going on and you, you do not know how it's going to end yeah yeah that's it and then John like rolls out of the way and Meadows just like drives a car at him like it nearly <laughs> crashes into his head like yeah. the stuntman sat there as this car 
crashes in just above and it's, his head. It's only the gap between the front wheel and the front of the bonnet that uh, that you have that gap that yeah, saves yeah, his life, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, you're definitely like... <gasps> you're choking on it. It's really scary. And then he, like, slams his hand in the door, which is maybe a little callback to where... Um, uh, Lionel slams Tommy's yeah. hand in the record and then player. He fucking twats him on the back of the head with a massive wrench, sucker punches him and knocks him out completely, doesn't he? And then the cops turn up, you know, characteristically three minutes too late. It's just so exciting that end scene. It was one of those really surprisingly brutal fight scenes that I just wasn't expecting. Mm. I do like the um the the way that the the whole of the end of the film, not just the fight scene, plays with you because Williams allows him to drive what you know isn't actually proven to be. I mean, we know it is. Yeah. yeah. But as far as the police are concerned, it's it's a different color. It's got a different logbook. Yeah, it's got a different number plates. But Williams yeah. allows him to drive that yeah. home. And you think, ah, oh, okay. And then there's the again there's the sucker punch of getting home and finding that Anne's left him. And yeah, I was yeah, yeah. prepared to go with that as well. Yeah, yeah. They could have done it. It's a noir, isn't it? Mm. And they drag it out for long yeah. enough for it to feel quite painful yeah he sits down doesn't he he's, and he's absolutely battered his face is like ripped to shreds his clothes are ruined he's covered in oil and blood and mm. snot and everything and he's just sat there on his armchair in the darkness and then a shadow passes over his face yeah. not quite sure who it is thank god it's uh, it's his wife it's his wife so I just want to talk about Richard Todd quickly you know because I think it's such a great performance from him you know I love seeing how vulnerable he is from the beginning and he's putting a brave face on it and I love as he lets his kind of mask drop and that desperation is converted into this kind of wrath over something as trivial as his car being stolen but the consequences of that on his life just like triggers something in him but I, mm. by the end I love seeing him wielding you know this plank of wood with the nails in and stuff and I just think he's such a great actor it's a shame that you know, he had a few more movies after this and then kind of slipped into, you know, TV. Like, by by the time he was 60, he was doing, like, Doctor Who and Murder, She Wrote and Midsummer Murders and yeah, Holby and all of those as guest stars. But he was um, he was in The Long, The Short and The Tall, which I did at school as a school play, mm -hmm. <laughs> which uh, our drama teacher was really into. So we, we were all acting out this... Uh, thing of like kidnapping a Japanese uh, soldier and it was, that, that always stuck with me that he was in that as well and then he's in The Longest Day the D-Day film yeah. which I'd like to talk about because he was you mentioned it before that he was a, a D-Day hero yeah. but do you know the story that he was um, Captain Sweeney Todd of the uh, 7th Parachute Battalion 5th Parachute Brigade British 6th Airborne Division and was one of the guys that parachuted in after the gliders had been through on the longest day, right, um, at D-Day, uh, and he took play, took part in the real action at the uh, Pegasus Bridge. But when he came to be in the longest day, they offered him the chance to play himself, <laughs> and he said, um, he said, at this stage of my acting career, I couldn't take a part that small. <laughs> so he played his own commanding officer. Um, Major John Howard and somebody else played him. Oh, excellent. <laughs> yeah, it's a really nice sort of D-Day story, but you know, yeah. yeah, just it seems like he was like Fleming's first choice to play James Bond, and yeah, I saw that. Yeah, it just seems like oh, one of those actors. You know, he kind of is. I don't know. Is he a, like a Richard Burton? You know, is he that kind of quality? You know, why? Why? He's certainly not 
Sorry. It's just it's just the vagaries of, of I know, chance, I was, isn't it? Just it's such a shame, isn't it? We see a performance like this, which, mm. which you know, I've, I I was on a knife edge all the way through the first time I watched it. I thought it was going to be one of those, oh, I say chat, old chap, no, because <laughs> that's how it starts. And then it sort of, he just kind of lets rip, man. It's so vulnerable. and mm. Yeah. So this was your um, suggestion. Um, and I didn't actually know you were suggesting it as a potential podcast thing. I thought you were just sort of like sharing it as something you should watch. I was fairly enjoyed it quite a bit the first time round, but didn't think I'd want to watch it again. But then when you suggest it for a podcast, said, yeah, it's okay. So I'm really glad I watched it a second time because there's a lot in it yeah. that just kind of, if you're not that observant, kind of flows past you. It's, I think it's easy to just take it as another kind of six, uh, late 50s, early 60s British genre film that yeah. has disappeared off the... And to be fair, given given what production schedules were like and what you know programming schedules are like, there were a lot of fifties and sixties forgettable movies made. Yeah, they just, just turned to them film. out. Didn't yeah, they really did. And this is not one of those. I think next time I watch it, because we've watched it, I think from a DVD transfer, mm. uh, quite compressed. I would have to watch it in better conditions because when you look at who the DOP was, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a great looking film, but when mm. you look at who the DOP was, did you look at his IMDb? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, I think that's one of the most frustrating things about watching it is once you know that the man that shot it, yeah. you're just like, come on, somebody out there, like, somebody's got to get there. Who's got the next? Yes, yeah. you know, let's all chip in. Let's get a Kickstarter going. I mean, this is the guy who shot like. Uh, amongst others, Gone to Earth, The Small Back Room, The Red Shoes, and more for mm. Powell and Pressburger. Yeah, Tales of Hoffman, Ill Met by Moonlight. Yeah, and then he's also shot for Stanley Donan, Two for the Road, which is a fantastic film. Um, shot for Billy Wilder, Joseph Losey. He's even shot a, an Abrams and Zucker movie, Top Secret. Top Secret, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I keep pitching as a podcast and <laughs> you keep pushing back against. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll do that one. I love Top Secret. Yeah, yeah. To, to think that, you know, you're reduced to watching something that's clearly shot by a master in such reduced circumstances, it's just not right. Um, whilst we're talking about, you know, other contributors as Ralph Sheldon, who's, again, is somebody who's is his first feature, yeah, yeah. comes from a documentary and shorts background, um, varied career. Yeah. Highlights for me. Uh, um, 1985, when he did uh, Shanghai Surprise and the Holocroft Covenant. <sighs> But he did do The Likely Lads, um, The National Health for Jack Gold, uh, villain, and hats off to him for editing a film directed by a master editor. He did um, the terrible movie Every Home Should Have One, directed by Jim Clark. So, you know, this... um you know, there's a DVD of it available. It's it's actually the full films on YouTube, in pretty much the same quality as the DVD on the uh, retrospective channel. Um, we'll put a link to it in the podcast mm. stuff. I mean, it's it's a, it's a DVD you can buy for three or four quid off Amazon. Yeah. Um, I would recommend it. Um, I'm glad that I'm glad that I saw it. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the time it was banned in Finland, and I think that should let you know how how fucking brutal it is. Yeah. <laughs> And they they sold it hard in other countries on the basis of its brutality know, and sexuality, didn't they? Yeah, if you catch up with our sort of um, enhanced YouTube version, we've got all the international <laughs> film posters there, and they definitely make it look like some garish, sleazy uh, British yeah. exploitation movie. It didn't do particularly well on release, did it? Um, it no. I, I honestly think it's just because... Did it even get a release in the States? All I yeah, could see it, was... the New York Times panned it. 
Yeah, but that looked like a one-off screening like three years after it was completed. I, I can kind of understand by 1960 there is an awful lot of film noir out there and, and Peter Sellers not being a major international star wouldn't be enough to sell it. Yeah. it's It would just be a hard sell. It feels like they tried to slip it in after Lolita came out, maybe. Right. Yeah, it's you know that probably explains why it's something of a footnote these days. But, I mean, we wouldn't be talking about it if we didn't recommend it for one reason or another. Yes, I think uh, it's quite brave in, you know, maybe it's second viewing stuff, but, like, the way the women come across. I love the East London location. Some of those spaces are still there mm-hmm. um, for you to walk along and explore. I would recommend it. I mean... It, I, I would never recommend anything as a noir because it's such an old, an overused term and yeah, it suggests a familiar... You know, this does kind of operate within that basic framework, but there's so many incidental pleasures, so many good performances and bits of detail and bits of craft that make it, you know, more than just what it seems. It's just like, you know, a, a, an average kitchen sink British gangster movie with a surprising Peter Sellers performance. It's, it's far more than that. For me, there was just something about the kind of energy that the film had. I mean, I know that, like there's some quite a few first timers on it, like giving it their all. But I don't know, like both the director and the actors were seasoned enough that they could have just turned up and done it by the numbers. And I think there's there's just something the talent involved are really doing something special. I think you know the director, the the cast. I think they're really like pushing and and trying to get something more out of the material and and the scenario and the setup and you know the fact that it is feels like really authentic on the streets and I saw it and wanted to talk about it I think yeah that was the kind of reaction I had to it most films I see and then I you know okay good I'll tick that off the list but this one I saw and wanted to talk about it that's why I sent it to you to you mm. I was like have a look at this I, wow yeah I mean, something that that could be just box ticking and just programming is really really potent mm. isn't it it's it's quite it's pretty powerful mm. we'd probably be high-fiving each other now if it wasn't for the fact that you hated the music and i really was like wow what a score it's mm. really good it's so uh so challenging and you know so exciting and yeah maybe we could play out with a little, a little bit of john barry yeah okay well i'll take the headphones off and just just let this play for you <laughs> Thank you. 